electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. Price hikes everywhere. Another report showing food, energy, and a bunch of other things are all costing more. But has inflation already peaked? We'll look at whether it has what the Fed might do about it and how you can be prepared either way. And the hottest unicorn in the market is now Stripe, the company helping some early employees cash out as it slowly prepares for an IPO with a valuation nearing $100 billion is all the best priced in. Plus, yogurt buying, shorting DraftKings, and how much your house is really worth. It's all coming up in rapid fire today, but we kick things off with the markets and Dom Chu for that. Dom? I don't know if, that, if you're anything like me, Kelly, but I constantly look on Zillow, all of those websites, this kind of day and age to see how much my house is worth. So I cannot wait for that segment about what my house is really worth. So take a look at the markets overall. We have some fractional losses here on this Tuesday afternoon. The Dow off by about 130 points, about one-third of 1% to the downside, a quarter percent declines for the S&P. That's roughly 11 points, 42.44, the last trade there. And the Nasdaq Composite underperforming today, down three-quarters of 1%, 100 points to the downside. Still, though, above that 14,000 mark, so we'll keep an eye on these marginally down markets right now. One place that's not showing any fear of that inflation story you were referring to is the bond market. And here's what I'm talking about. The 10-year Treasury note yield is right just about 1.5%, you can see there, and it has been kind of tailing a little bit lower over the course of the past couple of months. How can it be that if inflation is so rampant, apparently, that the bond market doesn't seem to think so? They keep buying up fixed rate debt, pushing yields lower. We'll see if that dynamic holds on. It might just be positioning or technical, but I'm sure we'll talk to some experts who will tell us otherwise as well. And then one other place to watch, mega cap technology, specifically Oracle. Why? Because it's down one and a quarter percent. It's been down four of the last five days, but this massive software and database and cloud computing company reports earnings after today's closing bell. And Kelly, this stock has been up about 53% over the last couple of years. It has outperformed the market over the last 12 months and the last year-to-date period as well. The reason why it might have found a sweet spot, Kelly, value and technology in one old world technology, catching a bit, it pays a dividend. It has all these different kinds of things going. And by the way, I'll leave the stat for you here. The options market currently pricing in what could be an up or down move of 4% hmm. on earnings. Back over to you. That is surprising. Dom, thank you so much. Now back to Zillow. Uh, we're just a little over 24 hours away from the next Fed decision. Investors are on the alert for any more taper talks as the inflation debate roars on. But one of my next guests says, hang tight. We're in a great spot in the markets. And with the bond vigilantes of the past out of sight, this may be one of the best times ever to invest. Let's bring in Chris Grisanti, the chief equity strategist for MAI Capital Management, and Jeff Krempelman, who's chief investment strategist at Mariner Wealth Advisors. And Jeff, you're the man I was referencing. So tell me why you think this is actually one of the greatest times uh, to be exposed to equities. Well, I, I just think it's a solid time. Whenever we evaluate the market, we talk about the fundamentals, the valuation, the technicals. And if you look at earnings, you look at economic growth, that's solid, albeit it's probably going to moderate from here, but still to healthy levels. We don't think the weakness of recession. Valuation is reasonable, and the technicals 
uh, are supportive. So that's a, a fairly good environment. It's not like we're looking for petty gains over the balance of the year, but we'd stay invested for nice returns in 2022. And of course, the topic is yours, inflation. And we do think that there are a number of reasons, you've heard this from me before, to be patient, don't predict the predictors, hmm. see how the data plays out, and that it likely will moderate. Um, it, it's it's going to be at higher levels than we've seen historically, probably for some time, but there are some special items out there that we think will will moderate. And I'm, I'm happy to, to talk about that. Sure. But, and we, we can uh, circle back. That's a pretty back. good cocktail. Yeah. And, I, and there's a lot of interesting things to dig into. I, I think it's some of your picks and places you're putting money to work. But Chris, let me turn to you first, because I think you are a little bit more alarmed about inflation. Tell me where, why, and what you're doing about it. Sure. Well, well I'd say Jeff is a smart guy, and I don't disagree that we're in a nice spot. But, but I also think that that's the consensus view now. And, and I really don't see much fear in the markets at all. And, and I think that's kind of a warning sign. So that's a problem. The other thing is, once you're in a nice spot, that the next place to go will be a spot that's just not quite as nice. So what can bring us there? And that gets back to your point. I think we're going to start talking about tapering pretty soon, certainly by the end of the year. So I think that's going to be uh, added volatility. But I also think the monster that will come to life in early 2022 will be wage inflation. I do think that Jeff is right that we're seeing a moderating ahead of commodity inflation. But I do think the 800-pound gorilla, which is wage inflation, is going to rear its ugly head you know, in the not-too-distant future. So, so I, I'm a little less complacent than the consensus, I'd say. Sure. And I think in terms of stock picking for places that you think kind of skirt some of these more worrisome trends, you're looking to a Roku, uh, Texas Instruments, and, uh, and that sort of thing. Jeff, let me turn back to you and ask about the comments we heard from Paul Tudor Jones yesterday when he says, you know, if the Fed does nothing at this meeting, it's a signal for him to put the inflation trade on. You're, you're telling me, and I think a lot of people are, are actually saying, they're not so sure inflation is going to keep rising, that it might have peaked already. Um, if you look at lumber prices, if you look even at kind of the PPI running hotter than the CPI and that sort of thing. So what do you do as an investor if the Fed does nothing tomorrow on the taper? I think we keep doing what we're doing. And like I said, don't predict the predictors that the offsets to this fear about inflation is, you know, number one, we have had these supply constraints that we think will anniversary. We've all read about the uh, semiconductor bottlenecks, the drought in California. You've got uh, clogs at, at shipping ports and, and those types of things. We've had labor constraints because of special unemployment payments. That's been you know, widely written about and speculated on, um, as well as school reopenings. That's going to ease some of these pressures. And we do see nice labor productivity. Unit labor costs have been quite tame. And, until we, and that is what causes that. Um, self-fulfilling wage price spiral. So we don't see it there. And in that environment, that is what I just described. Uh, again, we're not looking for robust returns, but solid returns, and we would remain balanced. We would not be heroic in running to these cyclical, economically sensitive names like many are wont to do. Sure. And abandoning growth, we would have a blend of both. And, and, and we find good innovation that helps drive labor productivity, by the way, um, in both the growth camp and in, in pockets of uh, what would be considered value. Right. And so we want to stay balanced. 
You, I think, made an interesting point, Jeff, about how you're not, you know, when you want innovation, you don't have to buy tech. And maybe that's not the best thing to buy these days. You can buy consumer discretionary. You can buy other parts of the market, you know, and you've got a bunch of picks spanning different sectors where technology technology is driving innovation. And, Chris, I turn back to you on that point. It kind of echoes what Dom was saying earlier. You know, the best parts of tech lately have been old tech. You know, it's been the Oracle's, the in some ways, the IBM, so, the Cisco's, right. the Intel's, you mentioned Texas Instruments. So tell me why that one in particular to you is an attractive place to be throughout the remainder of this year. Well, well, I think Jeff and I are on the same side of the fence when we think technology is, is the wave of the future. You know, oil for the late 20th century economy, now we have semiconductors for the 21st century. They're just equally as essential. Uh, Texas Instruments is our kind of meat and potato semiconductor. They're not super cutting edge, but they're in just about everything. And so, you know, we think that's a great way to play the digital world, even if things get more volatile. And then make one more point, which is, look, 2021 hasn't been that complicated. We've got low rates, strong earnings and a pandemic recovery. That is, you know, that's nirvana. However, 2022 gets a lot more complicated and the market's going to anticipate that six to nine months out. And here we are. Hmm. So I would just say let's let's keep away from complacency. All right. Gentlemen, Chris Crisanti, Jeff Krumpelman, thank you very much talking about these markets again 24 hours before we get that Fed decision. In fact, in the meantime, we're getting results of the 20 year bond auction that was top of the hour. Rick Santelli has the details. How'd it go, Rick? Hi, Kelly. Well, I gave it A's and Apple for straight up demand at one o'clock Eastern. This was the 14th, the one fourth auction of 20 year securities. And there was some best of breed today. The Dutch auction yield was 2.12, lower than the one issued market, lower yield, higher price. It gets a good grade for pricing. And if I look at the bid to cover, 2.40, well above the 10 auction average on this 14th auction. 62.1 on indirects. Those include foreign investors. Very solid. But here's the best to breed. 20.4 is the largest direct percentage in all 14 auctions, as is 17.5, the lowest amount of leftovers taken by the primary dealers, which means everything else would fought over to some extent. So yes, very solid auction. And I think what it really tells us here is, is that the Fed has convinced some investors that we may see higher prices and lower yields. But the truth will be how inflation ultimately may change that path. Kelly, back to you. Okay, Rick, thank you. Rick Santelli. Turning now to Stripe, it's fast becoming one of America's most important e-commerce players, and investors are paying up for access as it gradually prepares for an IPO. It's now valued at $95 billion. That makes it also America's most valuable private tech startup. Just last month, the tender offer attracted $4 billion in bids. So why are investors so interested in Stripe, and what does it mean for the traditional credit card names? Let's ask Moffat Nathanson partner and senior analyst Lisa Ellis. Lisa, welcome to you. I think my first question is actually, who are Stripe's competitors? Are they actually banks? Uh, no, their direct competitors are these other kind of payment plumbing firms like Audien, a PayPal, a Square, like a Fiserv, an FIS. These are all the businesses that sort of sit below the surface and do the plumbing that enables merchants, companies, both online businesses and in-store businesses, uh, take card payments. Sure. So when we see news, for example, some of their partners, they're now uh, partnering to offer credit cards and debit cards. I mean, let's play this out as Stripe is entrenched now in e-commerce because it offers the flexibility a lot of people couldn't previously get for kind of processing these payments. What does that business model look like in a few more years? Do they simply continue to take a toll of, you know, the growing portion of e-commerce as long as they can maintain market share? 
Yeah, they're um, it, yeah, exactly. They are, you know, they are the plumbing sitting behind big players like Shopify, parts of Amazon, Instacart, DoorDash, all these big uh, online firms, marketplaces, largely that have a, you know, are, have a huge amount of e-commerce volume. So they will continue to grow with them. Stripe grew about 70% in 2020 as all of those businesses got a huge boost um, with the pandemic. And yeah, they do, as they grow, they become, as you highlighted, kind of a frenemy style dynamic with banks and with the card networks like a Visa and MasterCard because they offer some banking services like almost on a white label basis. So they sort of sit in between and can sometimes sort of commoditize a bit what the bank or the card network is doing. So it's not like a direct competition, but it's certainly something to keep an eye on because it's kind of a frenemy dynamic. That's a great way to put it. And we know that this is a company investors in the public markets have wanted access to for some time. They're so big now. This uh, tender offers, I understand, was in part a way to let employees whose stock options might be about to expire kind of monetize those. So it sounds like they're still maybe readying for the end of this year, early next year. But at, I mean, is this still going to be an attractive name once it goes public? Because this is a high valuation. Look at Uber. Look at some of the other whales that have gone public this way. I, they haven't enjoyed great performance. Yeah, it, it, we'll have to see, you know, if and when Stripe finally does IPO. Like you said, it's always a little tricky when these very large companies uh, move from the private markets into the public markets. Um, and they are taking some steps, as you said, to try to kind of smooth that transition. Um, but over the long term, you know, Stripe is a fantastic kind of agnostic way to just play global e-commerce because they're sort of sitting behind the scenes. You don't have to pick you know, which country or whether you think it's going to be Amazon or Shopify that wins, they're actually sitting behind the scenes as sort of the plumbing serving all of these players. So as long as you believe in the long-term growth potential of e-commerce, you know, they're a good long-term play. And it's telling that Shopify itself is often one of their investing partners, you know, that they clearly view this as, you know, necessary and attractive technology. So final question, what is what differentiates Stripe ultimately from the competitors that you earlier mentioned? Uh, their tech platform and their tech, uh, you know, their sort of innovation DNA is really where they're differentiated. Um, they, the way they said, because they're working with startups and really cutting edge e-com players, those players are pushing them to be very innovative and, you know, at a very speed, rapid innovation, build out global capabilities, build out some of these um, card issuance capabilities, banking as a service capabilities, et cetera. And it's that kind of tech not just their existing technology, but their sort of laser focus on staying cutting edge on the underlying technology. Um, that's really what's going to keep them ahead of some of the uh, the other alternatives. Sure. And for now, you still have buy ratings on, you know, the likes of Visa, uh, PayPal, MasterCard, Square. So it seems like the growing pie may be lifting all these boats, at least for the time. Lisa, thanks so much for joining us. Terrific. Thanks, Kelly. Lisa Ellis of Moffitt Nathanson. Coming up with oil at nearly three-year highs, we'll talk about what's ahead for crude and other commodities, which are now some of the market's most created, crowded trades, she said. The head of Go Goldman's Commodity Research joins us next. Later on in the show, we'll speak with the CEO of a crypto asset manager overseeing more than a billion dollars. They just raised tens of millions from some big-name investors on Wall Street. So our concerns about crypto's recent outflows and its eco-friendliness overrated. We'll explore ahead on The Exchange.
This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Crude oil is hitting its highest level since 2018 as economies reopen and demand continues to rise. West Texas has climbed nearly 50 percent so far this year. Brent's not far behind and energy is one of the best performing sectors, I think the best, in 2021. But the latest B of A fund manager survey says the commodities are now the most crowded trade. Is that a warning sign? Let's ask my next guest. Joining me now is Jeff Curry, the global head of commodities research with Goldman Sachs. Jeff, it's great to have you back. That's got to set off some alarm bells in your mind, right? No, actually, I find it a very surprising stat. You just look at the positioning data from the CFTC. You're like copper, which is king of this commodity story, is running at about 30% of the length that it normally see. Oil is about average. Grains were at all-time record highs, and they're only about 80%. I think the key here is when you think about positioning is look at it in the context of total AUM. Commodities have gone down over the last 15 years. Stocks and bonds have gone up. So if you look at it as a percentage of AM, it just gets smaller and smaller. So, you know, I like to say I've never seen a market so long on conviction, but so short on position. (laughs) Okay, very well said. So let's talk through some of the commodities plays. Are you bullish on, on pretty much all of them? I mean, and this is interesting because we are watching things like lumber and copper, which is down from its highs to figure out has the inflation trade already peaked. From what you're describing, it feels like there still could be a ways to go. Oh, yeah. We're arguing this is the early innings of a much longer commodity super cycle. Um, but in terms of the commodities we like today, you know, oil is the one with the best upside potential near term. You know, we have the reopening of economies globally. You pass the baton from the U.S. to Europe, as well as the emerging markets. Even India is recovering. Um, oil demand just in the last several weeks has gone from 95 billion barrels per day to 96.5 million barrels per day. That's a huge jump in just a matter of weeks. You put that in the context of a nearly inelastic supply curve. In fact, you look at the rig counts in the U.S., they were 365 last week. They need to be 400 just to offset decline rates. We're not seeing the investment, which really leaves OPEC as the only game in town. Inventory is drawing. Our target in third quarter is $80 a barrel sure. with the potential of upside risk to that. And it's ironic that, you know, kind of the U.S. sitting on its hands from the ESG move is giving the power back to OPEC and pushing up the price of oil. A uh, couple of maybe unfortunate uh, side effects. But again, oil is a unique commodity in that it is its supply is controlled and it's under these ESG pressures. I can understand why someone will look at that and say, that price can keep going higher. That makes sense to me. But as for the rest of the commodities, I mean, 
are in, for mo- and there's so many different kinds. We're talking about metals. We're talking about grains. We're talking, you know, and mm-hmm. for all of those, do you think we're in the early innings of a multi-year uh, cycle? Well, when we look at the, the metals, the only reason you're negative on oil is because you got to go invest in all of the the um, the decarbonization of the, of the global energy system. And that's where we're going to require copper. In fact, we argue copper is the new oil. Hmm. Um, you cannot electrify the world without copper, given the conductive properties of copper. So you need it. Um, and as a result, when we think about the next 10 to 15 years and the demand for decarbonization needs, copper, aluminum, because it goes into high voltage transmission lines, um, nickel, silver goes into solar panels, and then you have lithium and cobalt. We call them those the big six um, metal commodities. Those are the ones that are going to be central to this whole decarbonization theme. I, I liked that so much I was tweeting it out uh, as you finished the thought. I mean, we, we hear things, you know, here and there about this is the new oil, that's the new oil, data is the new oil, and so forth. But your point is that by pursuing the ESG goals, we're actually making all of these commodities more attractive for the long run, pushing up their price. I mean, a side comment is how that affects, again, the affordability of this transition and those who rely on, you know, the the sort of oil products are moving away from which are going up in price as well. Let me ask you in the remaining time that we have about crypto, because you do cover that uh, as well. And you have some thoughts about kind of the relative attractiveness of Ethereum here, right? Well, I mean, you've seen Bitcoin rise because uh, the world's back into a risk on mode. I like to point out crypto is a risk on asset. It does not trade like gold, which is a risk off. In fact, this week, gold is off, crypto is is up. Now, when we think about what drives it as being a risk on asset, it's its real use of what you actually use it for. Um, And when we think about the crypto that has the potential for the greatest use going forward, we think Ethereum has that advantage over Bitcoin. Bitcoin is struggling with with the issues around recent ransoms being paid out, um, the potential for AML crackdown, and you know it has the ESG concerns. When we look out further forward, Ethereum has the ability to overcome these ESG concerns uh, because it's going to move to a proof by stake, which reduces energy consumption. So, you know, better use uh, Ethereum has relative than the other cryptos. It can consume energy much more, more, more efficient, efficiently. And when we think about you know the longer term growth, which makes these risk on assets, it's going to be that growth in demand. So interesting. Now I have to think all over again about inflation, the Fed, and all the rest of it. Jeff, thanks so much for your time today. We really right. appreciate it. Jeff Curry is Thank head of commodities at Goldman Sachs. Still ahead, short-selling firm Hindenburg Research has a new target on Wall Street. We'll tell you the name and why they're betting against the stock. Plus, with producer prices seeing their fastest one-year increase on record, B of A is breaking out the food stocks most exposed to inflation. We have the names and trades ahead. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a quick check on the markets. Dow off the lows of 194. It's down 134 at the moment. A pretty kind of mixed picture here in terms of the size of the declines. There's no real outlier. The Nasdaq is down two-thirds of a percent today. Pretty much everybody is kind of slightly in the red. Let's check on some of the meme stocks, which they're on the move higher. AMC, at least, is anyway. Here's the latest action where it's adding nearly 3% to bring its monthly gains to 130%. Meantime, Petco down 9%. GameStop down 7%. Bed Bath & Beyond down 3.5% today. And how about those metal and mining names? They've been lower, like copper, which just hit its lowest level since April, breaking below its 50-day average for the first time since February. There's copper and some of the names that trade off. Freeport McMoran is down nearly 7% on pace for its worst day since March and its worst month since the depths of the pandemic last year. Just keep in mind what we just heard from Goldman's Jeff Curry, who told us copper is the new oil, saying it's an important part of electrifying the world. He still likes it for the longer run. Kind of on that note, look at the move in lumber just in the last few moments. Don't know if it was related to that interview or something else. Lumber suddenly has turned around, adding 5% on the session. Remember, this has been one of the leading uh, movers to the downside with a 30% drop from the highs and a sudden about face just now. Let's get to Rahel Solomon for our CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Here is your CNBC News update at this hour. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland announcing stepped-up plans to monitor and stop threats from domestic terrorists. It includes working with tech companies to eliminate terrorist content online. Garland says there will be no political influence. There is no place for partisanship in the enforcement of the law. The Justice Department will not tolerate any such abuse of authority. And tonight on the news, the plan to fight domestic terrorism and who's on the top of the list of threats. In Illinois, emergency crews are rushing to protect the river from runoff before they extinguish a massive fire at a chemical plant. An evacuation order does remain in effect, even as the fire chief there says that air quality readings are good. Hard to tell from that video. And Major League Baseball announcing plans to halt the use of illegal substances to tamper with or doctor baseballs. Starting next Monday, pitchers will be ejected and suspended for 10 games for breaking the rules. Umpires will start regular checks, even if the opposing team doesn't request inspections. You're now up to date, Kelly. I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thank you so much, Rahel Solomon. Will Amazon finally disrupt the grocery store? Hindenburg Research has a new target, and the Zestimate gets an upgrade. It's all coming up in rapid fire right after this. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should be on your radar right now. It's time for Rapid Fire, and here to break down the headlines are Courtney Reagan, Contessa Brewer, and Dom Chu. Let's begin with Amazon opening its first full-size grocery store. Like everything the company does, it's designed for disruption. It's a 25,000-square-foot space called Amazon Fresh. It will feature cashierless just-walkout technology. It's set to open in Bellevue, Washington later this week. Even with its acquisition of Whole Foods, Courtney, Amazon's almost the fifth, uh, only the fifth-largest grocer in the country. They've got 3% of total market share. I mean, we've been hearing about Amazon trying this, that, and the other in grocery for years. And I mean, putting Whole Foods totally to the side, tell me why, you know, I should pay attention to this effort more than, you know, all of the other things it's been trying in the past. Yeah, Kelly, and it comes at a really interesting day. Believe it or not, today is four years since Amazon announced it was acquiring Whole Foods. And you might remember that day. I mean, truly, grocers worldwide shook with fear, with their stock prices tumbling at just that announcement. But Four years later, as you pointed out, the market share that Amazon holds is still pretty low when we're talking about total market share for grocery. This announcement today about this 
full-size Amazon Fresh grocery store with this Just Walk Out technology is a first of its kind because that had only been previously available at those smaller Amazon Go stores. And so I think this is going to be a pilot for what Amazon has learned both from the physical grocery store learnings from the Whole Foods acquisition and running that grocer largely sort of as what as is with some sort of prime infusions there along with that new just walk out technology and so i think this is could be a precursor to a larger rollout in the future and that's why we need to pay attention to it yeah. it's very interesting what happened with grocery over the pandemic i know we talked about uh, so often the the online ordering but believe it or not amazon's online uh, market share really didn't move like you might have expected it <laughs> to during that time its market share is uh, about 29% of online grocery, and that's lower than it was in 2018 by industry estimates. So, Contessa, I mean, I've been, I was writing about this today, so it's on my mind. If Amazon really wanted to make a headway in groceries, all it would need to do is literally underprice everything in the store by 10 or 20 percent and just say, we're doing it because we can, right? I mean, now, if they want the business to be profitable, that's a different story. If they want it to just be a test case for technology, maybe that's a different story. I can't quite figure out what it wants here. And I think Amazon has to be careful of that kind of cutthroat competition right now when it has the speculation of lawmakers right now about whether it's guilty of practices exactly. of putting smaller entrepreneurial type businesses out of business. That would not be the kind of thing that uh, you would think that our elected representatives would look on kindly. More curious, there were two points of this that I thought were curious. One is that when you are able to pick up these uh, items and walk out of the grocery store. One way that you can verify your identity is through palm print. Again, with privacy concerns, I'm thinking, is Amazon the company that you want to give your fingerprint to? Mm -hmm. and, and then the second thing is, with grocery margins so tight anyway, and the competition so fierce, it just, it's, it's an interesting place for Amazon to be trying to make a mark. A quick final thought, Dom? So to Contessa's point, I, I would say Amazon probably knows more about me than my own wife or mother do at this point right now. So a palm print is just an incremental kind of stage for this. But I would say this, Kelly, to leave you on a final note, I, I believe that Amazon's intention here is to just keep building the Rolodex. We used to kind of awe ourselves at some of these banks in America, like J.P. Morgan and Bank of America, that have a relationship with 50 percent of our population. I think Amazon's goal here is to try to get 100 percent touch with all the consumers in America out there. And this is just one more way that they do it, not just with their online channels, but with this as well. It just means that everybody in America at some point is the goal to become for them a customer of their company. Well, the uh, humble ambitions there. Uh <laughs> Clearly, everybody in the country will see if that if this helps achieve that um, or if they go back to some of the old concerns about some of their technology and, and all the rest of it. Uh, next up, and sort of relatedly, Chobani is reportedly working on an IPO. They're the Greek yogurt maker. You see them everywhere. They're eyeing a debut in the second half of this year, according to Bloomberg. The journal in February said Chobani could be worth up to $10 billion. And if Oli's performance is any indication, there is clearly an appetite for dairy companies, alternative or otherwise. Oli shares, Contessa, are up 35% from the IPO. Chobani feels like it could have been years ago, right? I mean, this is this feels like an ancient company now. I mean, I think that th when we're talking about hot dairy stocks, we've really got something going on. Interesting <laughs> about Chobani and going public right now because they've developed this yogurt that is real yogurt. They have figured out a way to take the, uh, the milk sugars out of it. So it's coming forward at 80 calories a serving. You know, if you take the lactose out of it, you're going to appeal to a much broader swath of people who are concerned about that irritant. And they're competing with these plant-based 
yogurt products. I, I think this indicates that Chobani thinks that they're in it for the long haul. Uh, again, interesting if you look at the estimate that the, the global yogurt market is going to decline by 8% this year. Wow. Yeah, we, we, it exploded so much, especially Greek yogurt, that, you know, I, Courtney, I guess better late than never. Yeah, exactly. I was just thinking about uh, your point with the Greek yogurt and how so many of the recipes that you look at say, hey, you can substitute sour cream for Greek yogurt. And when I think about Greek yogurt, I do have that sort of first impression association with Chobani. So I think uh, that obviously still bodes well for the company because they were one of the early players with such wide distribution. But I do think it's interesting when we're talking about dairy and we're talking about something like Oatly that's non-dairy, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's something that, that folks are looking for as a dairy substitute. So look, I'm sure they've done their research. I know that they have a large brand that uh, does have a lot of brand awareness, but it is an interesting time to go public now after, like you mentioned, Kelly, it seems like, you know, the hot the hot time for them was, I don't know, maybe a couple years ago. Yeah, maybe like 15, you know, <laughs> like maybe when I was in college. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. We're not going to beat up on them. Let's move along and talk about DraftKings. Speaking of getting beat up on today, Hindenburg Research revealing a short position in DraftKings. They're alleging their polished image and high profile U.S. partnerships are a front for a global gaming black market run by the third part of its SPAC merger, SB Tech. That was after speaking to former employees. Now, DraftKings stock was down as much as 7% on this report. It's currently down about 4.5%. They've dismissed it, writing that SB Tech, uh, and regarding it, quote, we conducted a thorough review of their business practices and we were comfortable with the findings. We do not comment on speculation or allegations made by former SB Tech employees. Now, this isn't the first time the firm Hindenburg has gone after a SPAC. Remember, Lordstown is down 47% since their original report. Just yesterday, speaking of Lordstown, both the CEO and CFO left the company. Today, shares are spiking about 10% because executives just said they plan to start limited truck production still in late September, and they have binding orders for this year and for 2022 production. Dom, what are people saying about this DraftKings call? I mean, th this is interesting because, first of all, Hindenburg has been a, a one of those short sellers that's gotten a lot more notoriety over the last several years here. It used to just be Muddy Waters and Citron. And now a, a number of these kind of short selling research firms who also take positions in these companies have come forth. Hindenburg's gotten a lot of attention because they have been occasionally pretty good on their calls. And of course, a lot of the companies don't like being the targets of them because, because of the research. What I find curious is how difficult it must be for a short seller in this kind of a market in the Reddit, Wall Street bets, stock twits kind of world, where all it takes is some message board posts and a few million people getting around and saying, hey, you know what, let's push some people out. I guess when it comes to this, to, to issue this kind of a report and then say that you've taken a short position, you better get ready to either reap the benefits quickly or reap the whirlwind sure. because it could be very quickly before some of these Wall Street bets type traders circle around and say, hey, you know what? There's an opportunity to squeeze some shorts in there. So for Hindenburg, True. I'm curious about how nimble they're going to be here. Contessa? And we, we are seeing an increase in uh, short positions for the company, but it's about double since the beginning of the year. That's number one. Number two, I, I want to point out DraftKings itself said, hey, you're looking at a report by a company that's taken a position and has an, uh, an incentive to drive down the stock price. Number three, I've spent hours on the phone this morning talking to gaming insiders and sources about this. My takeaway is sound and fury signifying nothing. For instance, uh, Lloyd Danzig, who is a managing partner at uh, Sharp Alpha Advisors, which is a venture capital firm focused on sports betting, said, look, 
The breadcrumbs are there. Hindenburg lays out the evidence to weave this narrative. But SB Tech is just not that important to DraftKings' bottom line. If all revenue from SB Tech went away completely, it would be almost meaningless. The second thing is, DraftKings is really using Canby as its tech provider right now and transitioning that into all of its own. Third is the rigor that goes into getting a gaming license in any state in the United States. They have to do a lot of due diligence, and DraftKings <laughs> is confident that they have done that with SB Tech. Look, quick final point on this, Contessa. What is SB Tech? So it's a tech provider. They operate in what's called in gaming gray or black markets. So they have some um, some technical technical operations, for instance, in China. If those China revenues just disappeared, it would be less than meaningless to DraftKings' bottom line in the United States. People who invest in DraftKings are doing so for what the market could bring to bear in the United States in the future, right. not what's happening in China by this tiny no, little tech provider. And that makes sense. In what I've been following kind of forums and at Twitter and elsewhere, these are exactly the issues being debated. Is how important is SB Tech? You know, why are people exposed to DraftKings? And, you know, did Hindenburg, you know, do they have the smoking gun here? Uh, it's a great explainer. Again, the report itself is definitely worth a read. Hindenburg uh, never minces its words. All right, finally, Zillow users are rejoicing yeah. today. The company has upgraded its Zestimate home valuation model. Using AI, their new algorithm is supposed to be more nimble to keep up with changing market trends. This adjusted system should improve the national median error rate by gobbling up more property data. And look at the stock. Despite this red-hot housing market, Zillow is down more than 15% this year, Dom. It's actually down 3.5% today. I'm not sure how much of that is because of the interest that's being driven around some of those and traffic on their sites. How much of it is because people are not visiting Zillow as much because of, you know, using other types of platforms for this. I would say that in this kind of environment, if this is a time to strike while the iron is hot for these guys, it is right now because there are so many more eyeballs, my, my own included, <laughs> that are focusing on some of these property values and trying to get some kind of an estimate about what it could be without having to engage a broker per se, right, or having to sign some kind of an agreement with them to have them represent you or anything like that. You just want to know what the market is right now. I'm not sure it carries into the future if the housing market starts to cool off a little bit. And, and a lot of folks I'm talking to who are on the real estate side of things say, hey, you know what? It's due for at least a little bit of a pause at this point, given the pandemic. So I'm, I'm I continue to watch, yeah, Kelly, what's happening with my Zestimates. <laughs> you're driving traffic to their site no matter what. We, Courtney, we asked our producers, people are looking, they've already changed. I mean, the property values are already updated to reflect these. They, uh, most people are finding that they are closer. Um, but maybe to Dom's point, the stock might be struggling a little bit in anticipation of kind of a hangover once this rapid demand uh, burst from COVID goes away. Yeah, exactly right. How long can we all be Zillow scrolling and wondering what it might be like to have a second home or a bigger home or just escape sort of the, the isolation that we felt? But I think as long as data gets more accurate, that can only be a good thing for buyers or for sellers. And I think that if you're a seller, you only hope that your Zestimate is going up, right, instead of going down. But I, I think, you know, in, in my experience, it has been pretty disappointing to look at a Zestimate and then see the actual value and have it be so far off. So yeah. more accuracy, better for everybody. Although now that I own it, I'm like, you know, I don't want my appraisal to go up. I don't want my, you know, they can they can lowball it now. I'm like, no, Good call. I think it should Good be call. worth half of that. Especially for the tax bill. <laughs> exactly, <right>? exactly. <laughs> Come on, Zillow, help me out here. All right, thank you, everybody. Courtney Reagan, Contessa Brewer, Dominic Thanks. Chu for Rapid Fire today. Still ahead, Elon Musk recently re-pledged that Tesla will accept Bitcoin once mining becomes cleaner. 
Crypto popping on that news. It's still over 40K today, but going green is going to be difficult. We'll have more on that in a moment. Welcome back. Some investors have been eschewing Bitcoin, not just because of its volatility, but because of its huge energy usage. And Tesla's Elon Musk recently pledged that they would hop back on the Bitcoin train once it becomes more environmentally friendly. But can it actually go green? Kate Rooney has a closer look for us. Kate? That's right, Kelly. That is the big question. And the issue here is the massive amount of electricity used to mine these Bitcoins. Elon Musk and Tesla are saying that they will accept Bitcoin when roughly 50 percent of the electricity comes from renewable sources, but we might already be at that level, at least according to some reports. CoinShares estimates 73% of global mining is already powered by renewable energy. Cambridge University, meanwhile, says it's more like 39%. There were a lot of comparisons, and there have been lately, to try to really put this in context. Cambridge estimates that Bitcoin mining emits more CO2 than entire countries like Chile, and others have pointed to Bitcoin's energy output compared to traditional cards and visa transactions. But critics have really pushed back on these comparisons, saying it's not apples to apples. And one reason this has been so hard to measure, a lot of mining is self-reported. So companies often fill out a questionnaire. Some estimates, meanwhile, are based on the source of of energy in the location where that mining might have taken place. Analysts I've been talking to say that miners are still likely to just use whatever is the cheapest source of electricity that they can find. And sometimes that is renewable energy, especially in places like Canada and Iceland. Hydroelectricity has become increasingly popular along with uh, wind and solar energy. And there has been some progress lately. For one, mining has been banned in major regions in China, specifically some of those places that have been seen as the headquarters for Bitcoin mining. Others are moving to regions like North America and Kazakhstan as a result. There was also a new mining council created to uh, create a little bit more disclosure for some of those miners recently. Self-reported is all I needed to hear for that to go, (laughs) Okay, maybe we need to to solidify this data a little bit. Kate, thank you. Uh, Kate Rooney. Despite some reservations about Bitcoin, investors are starting to get back in. CoinShares reporting outflows in Bitcoin funds totaled just $10 million last week. That's down significantly from the record of about $140 million of outflows the week before. And today, crypto asset manager Bitwise announced $70 million in new funding from Wall Street heavyweights like Stanley Druckenmiller and Dan Loeb. Joining me now is Hunter Horsley, the CEO of Bitwise Asset Management. Hunter, what makes you an attractive investment? Kelly, great to be with you. Um, I think that the, the, the vote of confidence in, in this round is people seeing the maturity of the crypto space. And today, Bitwise is the largest cryptocurrency index fund manager in the world. So they see that more and more investors are finding a use for crypto assets in their portfolios. Um, and an important tool therein is being able to rely on a financial advisor or a diversified portfolio and we're the leader in providing that for the space. How big do you think you can grow? And, you know, the, are the, all the concerns that we've mentioned about mining and eco-friendliness, I mean, does that, is that kind of the main concern among potential clients right now? Yeah, you know, I, I think at every step of the way in crypto, there have been different things that needed to mature or grow up. Back in 2017, there were ICOs and, and the craziness surrounding that. And there was a strong feeling that there needed to be more regulation. And fast forward today, we have quite a bit more regulation and, and active engagement from different regulatory bodies. Then there was, there was concern around how to securely hold assets. 
so as not to lose them because of their, their bare nature. And fast forward today, we have great custodians and we have providers like Bitwise who will take care of that for you. That's some part of what we do. I think that with the space continuing to progress into the mainstream, more and more things will be expected. We'll, we'll go under the, the, the microscope and we'll be expected to improve. And I think that the energy usage of, of mining is, is one of those. And I think it's very natural. I think the space can improve upon it. Hmm. Um, you, you heard the numbers from Cambridge and, and, uh, and others that uh, the energy mix is already slightly heavier towards renewables. Uh, but I think it can continue to improve. Zooming out, I think the other, the other way to interpret the, the Bitcoin mining um, attention is that uh, it, it's a good reminder that the story is bigger than just Bitcoin. Today, crypto is over a trillion dollar market cap as an asset class, and Bitcoin is less than half of that. Uh, and things like the Bitcoin mining issue could be the reason that other cryptocurrencies could flourish, yeah. uh, whereas Bitcoin you know, may not be able to run away with it. And we just spoke with Goldman's head of commodities earlier this hour, who says that he would recommend Ethereum over Bitcoin in part for, for those sort of efficiency uh, purposes. Hunter, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Hunter Horsley is the CEO of Bitwise Asset Management. Check out this chart. The food stock climbing about 17% so far this year, but that run could soon be over, as B of A warns. It's one of the companies most exposed to inflation. We'll reveal it and the other names at risk right after this. Welcome back. Producer prices look at this chart climbing 6.6% in May from a year earlier, the fastest such increase on record. Ahead of the print, B of A released a note outlining the food and beverage stocks with the most exposure to climbing prices. Kate Rogers joins me now with those names. Hi, Kate. Hey, Kelly. Well, looking at inflation over the next 12 months, B of A says the companies with the greatest exposure are Campbell's Soup, Keurig Dr. Pepper, Hormel, General Mills, Kraft Heinz, J.M. Smucker, and ConAgra. Now, taking a look at those stocks we just mentioned year to date, the best performer, Kraft Heinz, the worst performer in the group is Campbell Soup. Now, mostly consumer packaged goods brands here, but remember, of course, we're seeing prices rise in the restaurant industry as well, and that could also hit consumers there moving ahead. This might not come as a surprise since we've all been talking about it so much, but mentions of inflation have increased 70% in consumer staples Q1 earnings calls 40% in consumer discretionary calls, according to that note. B of A says that while inflation has accelerated since the beginning of the year, many companies have hedged against it, leaning more on price inflation. But that a return to normal post-COVID could mean more discounting moving ahead and promoting, and that could eat into the impact of these price increases. Now, interestingly, while it seems that companies will be able to pass through pricing, while retailers do take the hit on the margin, the note says that there could be a lag effect overall because hedging strategies are protecting some companies for now from those rising costs. B of A's packaged food and beverage cost basket indicates that average spot inflation was up 33.5% year-on-year. Kelly, that is the highest level since tracking began in 2016. And Back over to you. A good reminder, it would have had a lot bigger pinch if they didn't hedge uh, some of this. I'm sure they're breathing a little sigh of relief there. Kate, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Kate Rogers. And that does it for The Exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. 
FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.